0: Hello, and welcome to the Apropos Energy Initiative podcast. My name is Henry Lavoie, and I'm Apropos Media Director. So for the inaugural volume of Apropos Biannual Journal, we wanted to zoom way out and start with a broad question. What is energy? Now, there's a million different ways one could answer this question, depending on their field, background, or perspective, and we hope to convey a few of those viewpoints in the coming months. But before we get too specific, I wanted to talk with someone who's seen energy from a bunch of different angles, be it technical, historical, or political. So, I couldn't think of someone better to chat with than Sam Evans-Brown. Sam became one of New England's leading energy and environment reporters during his decade at New Hampshire Public Radio, where he was most known for his work hosting and producing the award-winning podcast Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. This past summer, Sam left Public Radio and is now the executive director of Clean Energy New Hampshire, a nonprofit organization which advocates for clean energy technologies in the state. During our conversation, Sam gave what I thought are several really useful ways to think about energy from a variety of perspectives. We also got into New Hampshire's particular place in the energy world and where it's at within the clean energy transition. All that, coming up. So, Sam, I wanted to start off by just getting right into the main event.
1: What is energy? Well, it's channeled through crystals to heal your body. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to all the crystal fans out there. I'm making fun of you explicitly. Um, I, yeah, it, it's funny. I, I was thinking about this question when you wrote to me that, that there are a couple ways you can answer it, but the way that I like best to think about this um, and the way that's kind of like the most universe brain is that there really are just a handful of sources of energy on planet Earth. And and, and when you get down to it, uh, in a way, they're all renewable energy. So... the 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 primary source of energy on the planet is the sun right i mean it rains down you know many times the amount of energy we would need to power our entire society um constantly over the surface of the earth um and then many different things take that energy and do stuff with it right so so plants are the obvious one which which take up the energy through photosynthesis and, and they use photosynthesis to to pull chemicals out of the air and create their create their bodies create their physical structure um and then and then plants, of course, die, and depending on the environment that they that they die into, they they can be preserved in in geologic time and become fossil fuels, right? So so coal is is actually just the trees of the Carboniferous period, which. Um, which was this time in which the entire earth was essentially a giant swamp and, and trees evolved the ability to create the woody material that, that makes a tree. And they evolved that before bacteria evolved to, to break it down. And so there was just, there were just trees growing everywhere and there wasn't any bacteria to, to decay that, the, that woody material. And so they died. And so this massive layer just built up um, deep beneath the earth's crust. And similarly, oil and gas are, uh, you know, they tend to be the, the dead bodies of, of ocean organisms. So there's there's this layer of, of dead material just accumulating at the bottom of the ocean and being covered by sediment and because there's no oxygen in the deep ocean. It doesn't break down. And so slowly over time, you get oil and gas that accumulates at the bottom of oceans all around the world. But all of that, you know, all of those fossil fuels are in fact, you know, the base of that, energy chain is the sun. Um, So they really are the same, (laughs) like this is the same source of energy when you, when you get down to it, but, but that's not the only one, right? Because you, you also have the tides. So, so the ocean, the movement of the ocean is, is dictated by, by the rotation of the moon around the earth. And that moves the oceans around, they sort of slosh in their massive basins. And that, the, and that tidal energy is, is nowhere near the amount of energy that is that is uh, deposited on the on the Earth by the Sun every day. But that's that's exogenous to the Earth, right? That doesn't the the tides move because of the Moon, not because of anything happening on Earth. And the last one, the only one that's really left is. Um, the heat from the Earth's core, which which is left over from you know it's it comes from a different a bunch of different places. Much of it is just left over from the the birth of the planet, um, but some of it is is like the radioactive decay of these elements that are that make up the Earth's core that really go back to like the birth of the universe, right? And that's it. Like those are the three. It's like the sun, the moon, <laughs> and the Earth. Like that's energy. So
0: why then in the past have we used fossil fuels Um, if they're so far down the energy chain compared to um, energy that comes directly from the sun or the tides? Why historically have we opted for
1: fossil fuels? Well, I mean, that's it's actually, we, it's a recent occurrence that we started to harness fossil fuels. I, I mean, if you go back, I mean, you can find, you can find buildings that were, that were designed to harness the sun through, through what they call passive solar design. So a lot of them are sort of cave dwellings, right? So, so they're, they're built on the side of a cliff face that faces south into the sun, and then the sun warms the rocks all day. And, and that means that even in the winter, you can have like a relatively comfortable space just based on the, the the thermal mass of those rocks behind you, you can find buildings that are designed based on those principles that that are thousands of years old, and and really like that you you find these principles everywhere. You know that there the, are the buildings in, in desert countries that have been built to use the wind as passive cooling. Um, so that you don't necessarily need something as as you know brute force as an air conditioner to keep you cool in the desert. Um, and it's really only with the advent of the discovery that we can mine these fossil fuels that that um, society has forgotten how to do a lot of these things, or has forgotten that you know has decided that we don't need to do these things. Um, so, so it's it's an aberration. I say that the past hundred years really are an aberration over the course of, human history, the degree to which we have relied upon these fuels that require the extraction of them from from under the earth. So what then is the upshot of
0: using the earth destroying fossil fuels to heat our homes instead of just
1: building more sun heated cliff houses? It, it's funny that like people think of them as earth destroying, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's sort of the environmental movement's framing of fossil fuels, but they've also, they have indeed enabled the creation of m- modern society and, and like everything that we love probably, but, you know, not everything, but, but like your Netflix and, and um, you know, and, and your, your comfortable room that you're sitting in right now, really, uh, you know, prior to the advent of fossil fuels, we lived a, a much less comfortable existence the real question is uh, how do we how can we create a society that is still a high energy society one in which we can have you know the comforts of modern society but do it in a way that doesn't cook the planet and that really is the the question for for right now it's the question for the next 10 years
0: I'm curious then how do you mentally wrestle with the trade-off between those two forces of fossil fuels both as a force to enable development and modern living, but also as a
1: profound threat to the planet. Um, how do you think about
0: that? Well, I think,
1: you know, it's funny because as a reporter in my previous job, my job was to think hard and engage with both sides of an argument, right? And, you know, both sides has become this this uh, sort of like pejorative term where it's where, where it's like it's like oh it's both sidesism where it's like everyone you know everyone's opinion matters this is equally valid and i've, I've said this before and I, I i sort of stick by it that that i think that engaging with people who disagree with you and thinking hard about their arguments and looking to see where they have a point and where and where they're just throwing up a straw man in order to to you know sort of advance this the maintenance of the status quo Um, I think that's a really important exercise, uh, even it doesn't mean that both sides are equally valid. I think that it's a, it's a good practice to engage with, with both sides. And I do think that when you look at the, 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 the benefit that we have gotten as a society from fossil fuels, that is a point which in which like the people who are arguing for the maintenance of the system are hundred percent correct. Um, and it's important to, I think it's important to acknowledge that in particular, because there are still billions of people around the planet who have not gotten a lot of those benefits and are still living are still living in a state in which they they really envy the, the the comforts that that a lot of people have in sort of the the global developed world. And the response of a lot of environmentalists has been to say, "Well, they can't attain our level of societal well-being because if they do, you know, environmental disaster will result." And and I honestly think that that's that can't. Be the answer. I, I think a that's that's not correct. I think that that there are ways to to develop the world in such a way that people can improve their their level of well being, and uh, we don't cook the planet, and we don't you know r- have a resultant collapse of biodiversity. Um, I just think we have to be more thoughtful than we've been, um, and that's where that's where I diverge with the people who who often adopt these talking points, where there that these talking points are often used as a way to say well like you know look look at the billions of people who who need their well-being improved ergo we have to just keep doing what we've been doing um and i think increasingly the economics of renewable energy make it clear that that no, not only do we not have to keep doing what we've been doing, but we might actually be able to raise these people's standard of living more quickly by abandoning the, the way we've been doing things and starting to adopt these these newer technologies that that, you know, hopefully, at least you know, when it comes to atmospheric CO2, uh, will have will have less of an impact.
0: Yeah, I think the big question then is who exactly should be responsible to invest the time, the money, the resources um, to continue global economic development without using fossil fuels. It seems somewhat unreasonable to expect less developed parts of the world to unilaterally build offshore wind farms or solar farms.
1: So who then should foot the bill how should we think about that yeah well the, i mean you've put your finger on what was the main sticking point at the uh, at global climate talks over the past 30 years essentially that there was essentially this argument that the the developed world had where they they were saying everyone has to eliminate fossil fuels eventually and the developing world was saying well how come you guys all got to use them and we don't um and that that dynamic was was one of the main things that prevented a global climate deal for for decades and i'm not, i don't think we can solve it on this uh, in this interview unfortunately and and fortunately also at clean energy new hampshire not engaged in global climate talks so it's not my job to solve it what i but what i would say is that generally speaking it's my belief that uh, there are positive feedback loops through through technological innovation and and political stagnation, right? In wherein you can uh, start to drive down the costs of technologies, and it changes that that debate. Because if if suddenly what you're saying to the developing world is not Uh, you, developing world, don't get to take advantage of the cheapest and most direct route to prosperity. Um, You have to take the side road into renewable energy. If what we're now saying is you, developing world, get to take the cheapest and most direct route to prosperity, which is also renewable energy, um, it's a very different conversation.
0: So I wanted to zoom in on your work now more specifically, um, looking at energy in a more local context. Where is New Hampshire right now in terms of clean energy development compared to the rest of the country, but also the rest of the world?
1: Uh, It's funny. Um, I'm on Twitter a lot, uh, which isn't, isn't great. I'm not gonna, I'm not proud. Uh, but, but Twitter does have benefits. And recently there was a thread by, by someone, a researcher at the Rocky mountain Institute, which if you're you're not familiar with them, they're great. They, they call themselves a think and do tank. And they were, they, they had a a presentation about the, the different regions of the United States and, uh, and what their energy, their energy policy would be if it was a Lord of the Rings character and new England were the Ents.
0: It's talking, Mary. The tree is talking.
1: Tree? I am no tree. I am an ant. So, like, I don't know if this is dating me. I don't know if we're at the point right now where Lord of the Rings is not, like, common common knowledge. But uh, the ants were in, in the Lord of the Rings movie and book. They were the the ones that Merry and Pippin went to and they were trying to to get help to to fight Saruman, the, the white wizard. And the Ents spent so long debating that Merry and Pippin were like pulling their hair out, but eventually the Ents figured it out and they trundled their way off and they helped defeat the evil wizard. The Ents cannot hold back this storm. We must weather such things as we have always done.
0: How can that be your decision?
1: This is not our war. But you're part of this world. Um, and that's New England, right? So, so New England is, is the region that, that is, is quite progressive on the national scale. It's not California, um, which, which often is driving the discussion of how to get carbon out of our energy system. But we're slowly trundling in the right direction. However, New Hampshire is sort of the hole in the donut, right? So all of the states around us are quite progressive, and New Hampshire, New Hampshire is often sort of riding on the coattails of those other states, and basically like letting Massachusetts make energy policy for us. Or um, depending on the administration, is is sort of actively resisting the rest of New England, often fruitlessly because uh, it's really difficult when you're you're not. Terribly economically powerful in your region to sort of stem the tide of change, uh, but that's what I'd say is you know New Hampshire is is the hole in the donut in a very progressive region.
0: Yeah, what do you think explains that though? Is it New Hampshire's I don't know sort of live free or die approach to maintaining you know low state budgets, taxes? Um, is it the New England style local town meetings which enable the not in my backyard types? To block new clean energy projects, you know, what makes New Hampshire the whole and the otherwise progressive New England's donut?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of like pick your favorite reason, you know, a, a really interesting test case is Maine, right? So Paul Page was governor of Maine for two terms. And, and so very frequently it was just sort of like Maine and New Hampshire were, were the holdouts. Um, but then there was a democratic, there was a blue wave in Maine and Maine now has this incredible, they, so last not this year, but the previous year, they had this incredible omnibus sweep of new legislation. And now Maine has the opposite problem where there's so many solar projects being proposed in Maine that they literally don't even have the people in place to do the necessary studies you would need to do to to get those those projects completed. Um, So... You know, things can change very quickly. but but I, I think you put your your finger on two two things, which is that um new hampshire's New Hampshire's uh, tax structure is such that the size of New Hampshire state government is much smaller relative to our population than than all the surrounding states. It means there's just not a ton of capacity at the state government level to to do the type of, you know, hard looks at our policies that would be required to to come up with with sort of more progressive answers. And um just to, to like lay this out a little bit, we have, for instance, energy efficiency is 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 a policy that a lot of people will point to as being kind of the low hanging fruit. Like it's much cheaper to save a bit of energy than it is to build a new power plant to generate a bit of energy. So if if you're looking at our regional, uh, the growth in in our energy demand regionally, it's much cheaper for us to just try to slow that growth down a little bit than to build expensive new power plants and power lines to, to fuel it. And so energy efficiency has been a policy that we have tried to pursue, but it's, it's like a little hard to explain uh, how it is that, that spending a little money up front will help you save money down the road. And the state simply doesn't have the analysts required to make the argument. Uh, and, and so we find ourselves sort of on this treadmill where, where everything becomes a political fight and, and there's no data to back up any of these arguments. So what is the current
0: state of the New Hampshire energy grid in terms of clean energy? You know, where
1: do we get our energy
0: from primarily?
1: Yeah. So the first thing I'd say is that breaking out New Hampshire, the New Hampshire grid from the New England grid is uh, not useful. (laughs) because New New Hampshire is part of the New England grid in really every imaginable way. And they're they're really, as far as the grid goes, there really are no boundaries in between the New England states. If you look across the country, there are really three grids. There's the Eastern interconnection, which, which basically covers out to the Rocky mountains, there's the Western inter- 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 interconnection that th- the mountains is, is a good way to think about it, but it, it's sort of, I don't know, it's not quite that clean aligned. So Eastern and Western interconnection separated w- by the Rocky mountains and then Texas and, and Texas has got this like, whole fascinating history as to why they have their their own grid that is like asynchronous from the other two. But then within those within those big interconnections, you have individual regions that that create their own markets. And so New England is a market into itself that and and everybody, you know, any electron sold in New Hampshire can just as easily be sold to a consumer in Connecticut or Rhode Island or Massachusetts as it as to a consumer in New Hampshire. And there really are no boundaries. So that said. New England as a whole gets the vast majority of its electricity from natural gas, um, and that has been something that's that's been a dramatic change over the past twenty years. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but we used to have a dramatically more coal-fired and and oil-fired electricity on the grid, um, and that is all but gone. And it has it, the coal in particular has has been driven out of the market by the low cost of natural gas at a really astonishing rate, and it's reached a point where there there are two coal-fired electricity plants left in all of New England, one of which has announced that it's going to retire, and the other one is in Bow, New Hampshire. <laughs> so Merrimack Station is the is the last remaining coal-fired power plant in New England that has not announced a retirement date. Um, and so that's been, it's, it's really, it's on the order of 60, uh, or on a, on a really natural gas heavy day, 70% of our electricity comes from gas. There's, there's about 20% that comes from nuclear, um, and that's two power plants. One is Seabrook. C- um, Seabrook Station here in New Hampshire. The other is Millstone down in Connecticut. Um, that has been declining as well because you can feel however you want about nuclear power. It is, in fact, effectively zero carbon at the point of generation um, or low carbon if you look at the whole life cycle of of, of a power plant. But it is a very, it, it is a low carbon source of, of electricity, but it, it struggles to compete in the market. It's very expensive. And so a lot of nuclear-fired power plants have been just going out of business over the past 20, 30 years. But that's about 20% still in, in New England. And then, and then we're at about 10, 11, 12% renewable energy. And that renewable energy figure includes things that a lot of people maybe feel squeamish about, such as a bunch of really old power plants that burn wood chips, for instance, or or I believe that number may even include the Power plants that burn trash, um, which a lot of people would not include in their definition of renewable energy. Um, so, when it comes to just like wind, water, solar, um, New England's, it's, it's even less than, than 11,
0: 10%. And so, what about the future then? Um, what do you think a realistic New England clean energy grid might look
1: like a few decades out? Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the question, right? <laughs> um, and I would love, I would love to, you know, whenever, whenever um, the time machine question comes up, I'm like, I'm like, put me in a time machine and I want to come out 50 years from now so that I can know which of these technologies won. because when we look at, at, at the sort of, the sort of sweep of where things are at with, with clean energy technologies, there are a couple that are basically there, right? Solar power is competitive today at you know, market rates. Um, there are a couple sort of like regulatory barriers that are slowing down the the, the speedy deployment of solar power in places like New England. Um, but when you just look at how much does a, a silicon wafer cost, it's there. Wind power, similarly, especially land-based terrestrial wind is, is cost competitive. The, the problem in New England is that uh, it's really hard to build anything in new England. And so we, we experience a lot of local pushback from folks, whenever you want to put a wind, a wind turbine in the most economical place for a wind turbine, which is usually on a high mountain Ridge, um, which often is something that people like to look at without wind turbines on the top of, and, and, you know, it's, it's a little, it, it that's boiling down their their pushback to, to sort of its most elemental level. But I, I have come to believe that there really, that's, that's where it mostly comes from. But New England and the East coast generally are also frequently called the Saudi Arabia of offshore wind. And that's because there are a lot of conditions on the East coast of the United States that make it absolutely perfect for developing offshore wind. And that's that first that there's a lot of wind out there. It's a very, very windy place. Second, the, the continental shelf, um, which is to say, if you look at a topographic map of the ocean, it's very shallow water for, for, you know, 50, 60 miles off the East coast of the United States. And that's unique. There's not a lot of places in the world that have a continental shelf that is so wide and so shallow. And then the last thing is that uh, the population centers of, of the entire Eastern seaboard are right there. You know, we, it was the first place in the United States to be built up when, when the colonists arrived and began their, their genocidal campaign against Native Americans. Uh, and, and so all of the history of the U.S. has been towards creating these big population centers on the Eastern seaboard, which just happened to be right next to this perfect resource for offshore wind. So, okay, those are the, those are the technologies that are ready, and the technologies that maybe aren't quite there yet, those are the questions that, that we have to answer. So batteries, for instance. As of right now, lithium-ion batteries are getting very cheap very quickly. So that's great. But a lithium-ion battery, we're really talking about storing uh, about four hours of energy. That's, a, that's about what can be done economically with lithium-ion right now. And that's great. Like It's, it's cool that we can that we can sort of smooth out the daily variation in renewable energy generation um, and particularly from you know the midday solar peak, you can sort of spread that out into the evening with lithium-ion batteries. But what we we are still lacking is something that's called seasonal storage. Um, and and there are a lot of different technologies that you can that that might be capable of providing seasonal storage, which is to say storing energy from you know the sunny months, of the entire summer, where we might be generating more solar power than than we actually need every day for months on end. How do you lock that up and use it in the winter when when there's not much sun in New England and when there's gonna be months on end where we don't have enough power necessarily or or where it might be nice to not have to have the power uh, on hand to power a peak winter New England day. And the technologies there are are things like taking renewable energy and running an electrolyzer to create hydrogen that you could then burn in a hydrogen fuel cell. And hydrogen, when it burns, does not create carbon emissions. It creates um, oxygen and water. You can actually <laughs> if, you're, if you're really if you're a big hydrogen nerd you can, you can see people who have hydrogen powered cars. they'll put a glass under the tailpipe of their car and drink the water that comes out. So hydrogen is one that's, that's, that people are looking at right now. It's, it's like the new hot uh, storage technology, but there's, but there's really, there's, there's any number of other ones. I mean, there's, there are folks who've talked up um, just having massive cranes that like stack blocks and then you, you unstack them and use the weight of the block to, to run a generator as it, as it com- comes back down to the ground. And that, you know, that could be seasonal storage. and And so there are any number of technologies that could fill that gap, but, they're not there yet, and those are the investments that we need to be, be making right now, and that's what's driving the uncertainty of the future. So, besides energy generation,
0: um, the other major point is infrastructure and distribution. Um, you know, in a lot of the normie conversations I have and have seen about energy policy, um, the debate tends to be more about energy generation technologies. You know, should we go nuclear? Should we invest more in solar and wind? That sort of thing. Um, but then, you know, I go on Twitter, read articles from people like yourself who are more deeply engaged with energy policy. And you guys are always talking much more about things like transmission, like energy
1: storage. You know, why is that? I mean what i'd say is that for people in energy land um it's always been about infrastructure and there are a lot of there are a lot of different types of energy infrastructure that would be really important to catalyzing the renewable energy transition and in particular i think people point to to transmission and and the fact that we don't really have a robust continental transmission grid. Um, So for instance, there are huge quantities of terrestrial uh, wind potential in the Midwest, but how do you get that to where the population is? And and so figuring out how to build a, a grid that can deliver the renewable energy from where the potential is best to where the power is needed is a real thorny problem because it's actually quite hard. A, it's quite hard to build these power lines because uh, there's a lot of local pushback and there are a lot of jurisdictions that they have to go through. But also B, I mean, the business case for them is just a little shaky. I mean, it's hard hard to find the investors who are willing to basically put their money forward for something that's gonna pay itself off over 40 years. It's what's called patient capital. And there isn't that much patient capital out there. So, for people who are
0: interested in the energy transition, who are, you know, somehow looking to get involved with the effort, um, particularly college students,
1: how do you recommend people could do so? So, so the way I think about this is that we really need, we, re, we need people who are concerned about climate change in every walk of life, because when we're talking about something as fundamental as totally transforming where we get our energy from... Um, that means that we need people who are thinking about this, who are looking at every aspect of, of our of our society, right? Like we need plow truck drivers who are invested in climate change um, mitigation and are thinking about how plow truck driving could be done zero carbon, and and like you know excavator operators, <laughs> like like those are things that that I'd like to see see people starting to. To put on their resume is like is like I help decarbonize our uh, construction vehicle fleets uh, emissions, and so so I think that like whatever it is that you're interested in, just start to ask yourself. Is there a solution out there is there one that's that's on the horizon that i can that i can try to move towards um you know in the the organizations that i'm involved in and that's the second thing i'd say is that um don't think about just your home right like i think you should be thinking about your individual emissions like sure you can you can try to buy an electric car if 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 it works for you financially and sure you can I i think everyone who's a homeowner should have a plan for replacing their boiler when it dies with, with something that's that's zero emission because like frankly that technology is ready to go and uh, don't let your contractor tell you otherwise but don't just think about your individual emissions start to think about everywhere that you're involved like where do you work what are their emissions can you start to can you start to pester the operations person at, at the, wherever it is that you work so that they can start to procure clean power to to power that your organization um, and similarly like where do you live can you get involved in your your local town's energy committee that is going to start to try to decarbonize the, the municipal buildings. And then of course, you know, the political arena is, is ultimately the most important one, because that's what we need is a whole system change. So, so what are the organizations that are ideologically aligned with your way of thinking that you could get involved with that are pushing for credible climate solutions? Because it, this is not just a democratic issue. I can point you to conservative organizations that are pushing for credible climate action and you should be supporting them because frankly, like they don't have enough conservatives supporting them at this point. And, and that movement needs to grow as well. So, you know, just like every everyone at every level of their life should be thinking about this. And and I'm, I'm frankly optimistic that that's where we're heading. Awesome. Well, Sam Evans Brown, thank you very much. Thank you.
0: If you're interested in more energy takes from Sam, you can follow him on Twitter at Sam E.B. Energy. This episode was scored and produced by me, Henry Lavoie. To stay up to date, subscribe to Apropos Energy Initiative wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Instagram, at AproposUNH. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for the release of Apropos' first issue of journal articles. Thanks for listening.